Welcome to the Retail Focus Podcast, a weekly collection of news, interviews, and information from the world of retail. Welcome to this edition of the Retail Focus Podcast. I'm Trent Kling for Leighton, who's back behind the scenes for this week's episode. Coming up, we'll be joined by Joel Bynes. He is the author of the recently released book, The Metail Economy. He'll talk a little bit about what retailers can or should be doing to attract today's consumer. And he'll give, which I love, specific examples, some of which he mentions in the book, some of which he doesn't, of retailers that are doing a good job. And he'll give some case studies as far as retailers that are really hitting home in terms of attracting today's consumer and what they're seeking from today's retailers through their doors. A quick reminder before we get to the news segment that you can, of course, check us out on social media at Retail Podcast, both Instagram and Twitter. And if you enjoy the podcast, we do ask that you give us a rating. Those ratings help others to check us out. And we do appreciate all the listeners that we've had over the course of the past over a half decade of doing this podcast. Hard to believe that this was something that was launched back in 2016, but we appreciate everyone for making us a part of your week. Well, let's get into the news segment. Another week, another bevy of retail earnings calls coming in. BJ's and Costco both beat on earnings following Sam's Club's footsteps and indicating strength in wholesale retail as, again, people continue to thirst for larger package sizes. Best Buy, Victoria's Secret, and Gap all also beat, although Gap still, by the way, had negative earnings per share. Hibbit met analyst expectations on the nose, which was somewhat unexpected after the more negative earnings call last week from Foot Locker. However, like TJX last week, Burlington posted a miss on earnings expectations. Ross went the other way. They posted a beat, as did Target, Kohl's, AutoZone, and others. So you see, we had a lot of retailers to choose from in terms of their updates that they were providing in many cases on their year-end earnings calls. But the focus of today's news segment is Kroger. One of the larger retailers out there is kind of a toss-up between Kroger and Target, both interesting earnings calls. But in terms of Kroger, certainly we thought it would be interesting to see how they framed talk around inflation. And I know some of you probably tired of hearing about inflation a little bit, but Kroger is a little bit more sensitive to it than many retailers are and certainly have some different insights there. But also, both Leighton and myself have seen a few products, sausage, eggs, other proteins as examples that have doubled in price at Kroger affiliates just over the past two weeks. You're seeing those prices really start to pop up and increase. Well, at least as far as the bottom line is concerned, at least as far as this most recent quarter, which was their fiscal fourth quarter was concerned, they showed adjusted earnings of 91 cents per share. That came in favorably over analyst consensus estimates of 73 cents per share, which was a nearly 25% beat. Their earnings call came amidst a larger business update, which they had a day after the earnings call. That update included the announcement of a rollout of three new cities planned for their fulfillment network, Austin, San Antonio, and Birmingham. And these are cities that don't currently have Kroger stores, but they're kind of modeling after what they've done in Florida, where they've opened up distribution and fulfillment centers to fulfill online orders exclusively. 
When you look at these cities, Birmingham's grocery market share is pretty divided, but Publix certainly gaining in market share there recently amid new locations. San Antonio and Austin are, of course, HEB territory. They don't have Kroger stores currently, although there are Kroger stores in adjacent towns, both south and north of San Antonio and Austin. But Kroger said with the success that they've seen in Florida without those physical stores, they feel as though these next three markets will offer upside with their digital solutions. These join plans for Oklahoma City, which that metro area currently dominated by Homeland and Walmart, and then the northeastern United States as well. And you have to think, certainly, if things go well in some of these markets, particularly San Antonio, Austin, Birmingham, and Oklahoma City, that Kroger would consider opening stores there on a go-forward basis. In particular, Oklahoma City, I think there's a lot of market share to be had there in what's been, over the last 20 years, a growing major metro area that I think, by many estimates, is underserved in the grocery space. Now, let's get to the numbers for the call itself. Comps for Kroger increased 4% on the nose. That had put their two-year stack at 14.6% increases. These numbers exclude fuel, of course, but they did grow fuel sales by 5% in gallon growth over last year, which certainly helped their bottom line out considering their profits per gallon also went up over the course of the last year. They only mentioned digital sales going up 105% on a two-year stack in the fourth quarter. They didn't give specific fourth quarter digital sales numbers. However, we can see that if we look back to last year's fourth quarter, fourth quarter increase was 118% last year over two years ago. So digital sales took a step back for them overall in 2021 in the fourth quarter. That dovetails again with third-party data we've mentioned here on the show and talked even to interviewees about, indicating both that people are more comfortable to return to those physical stores to do their grocery shopping, but also that there's still some frictional issues related to digital grocery, whether they're not happy with the substitutions they're getting, whether they're not happy with the quality of produce, one way or another, people voicing a little bit of concern regarding digital grocery, and if they don't have a reason to shop digitally, such as a global pandemic, that might not be their first option when it comes to grocery purchases. Now, while they may be losing existing digital customers, new pickup and delivery customers did increase by 25% in the fourth quarter sequentially for Kroger, so that would be fourth quarter over third quarter. Overall sales-wise, regarding specific departments, once again, their fresh categories outpaced the rest of their grocery categories, outpaced the rest of their categories in general. That includes things like paper products, general merchandise. Based on internal data, they noted that they now have a number one market share position in a few different specialty categories as well that are surrounding fresh. So you look at specialty cheese through Murray's, they're number one in that category. Number one in sushi sales in the U.S. as well, and number one in floral in the U.S., so this indicates that their niche sales areas, those continue to drive sales. They mentioned that for Valentine's Day alone, they sold 76 million floral stems, saw really good sales there for this most recent Valentine's Day, which didn't factor in to their most recent quarter. Now, during the analyst Q&A, they attributed the high sales in some specialty categories, like Murray's Cheeses, for example, to the fact that 
the pandemic encouraged people to seek new and refined tastes at home rather than going to a restaurant for such things. So this led to a trading up of sorts during the course of the last two years. And they saw the same thing in fresh during Q4, not just in cheeses, but in all of their fresh categories as people opted to trade up in certain circumstances, opt for produce items maybe they don't typically purchase. That all contributed to gross margin. And generally speaking, the increased sales on the outside edges of the store, so in fresh, in terms of meat, in terms of dairy, in terms of produce, those have boosted margins. They generally see greater margins on fresh than the center store CPGs that are stocked. This has been the case for many grocers that we've heard from over the past few months, Albertsons, Walmart being others there. Most executive comments on the call were centered around shareholder return and profitability. Like, look, that's going to be somewhat common, not only for calls at Kroger, but also companies like Walmart and such. Not going to get a lot of retail specifics out of this call, but we listened to the entire thing to delve into any retail tidbits we could get. And they did take some time to address other facets of their operation. One such facet was the fact that what they call operating or most companies selling general and administrative expenses, that was up slightly by seven basis points, which they attributed largely to greater associate compensation. This was a large topic on the call as analysts kept asking questions about going forward. Can Kroger maintain this profitability while also increasing wages to the amount needed and the amount necessary, especially with their newer settlements with various unions throughout the country. And CEO Rodney McMullen was very quick to mention on the call that their hourly rate, whether as a benefit of these collective bargaining agreements reached by unions or just independently, that's been increased to $17 for associates. When you include other compensation bonuses and benefits, it's up to $22 per hour. And Kroger has always been fairly big about associate-centric investments, especially since launching their Restock Kroger initiative back in 2017, because they feel as though they can invest in their associates, they can invest in their employees, they can invest in training if they're able to achieve cost savings in other areas. And they were able to achieve cost savings of over $1 billion during this past fiscal year, which is something that got mentioned oh, about a dozen times on the call. They were very proud of that. But as a result, a lot of that money can go towards reimbursing associates for their work, keeping associates on board. And that's something they mentioned again in the Q&A. They want to keep associates for years and years and years. They don't want to have to continue to onboard associates. They want to decrease churn as much as possible while also increasing organizational efficiency to kind of cut into some of the other expenses that they're seeing, just like the $1 billion in cost savings that they realized this past year. Additionally, they talked about private label share on the call. That continued to grow as a partial result of new product launches, exactly what we're hearing from the likes of Albertsons by the fiscal year end. Kroger had launched 660 new products in their 2021 fiscal year, half of them in the more premium Simple Truth and Private Selection banners. So you're really seeing growth in some of the upscale private label products there at Kroger. Now let's talk about their forecast for the year ahead, which I think was the more interesting thing to come out of this call. Now Kroger anticipates full year comps for the next fiscal year 
to come in up about 2 to 3%. This would slightly lag inflation for groceries if inflation comes in as expected, indicating an expectation at Kroger of falling unit sales on the grocery side. And after a lot of grilling by analysts on the call, I wouldn't say grilling, but just a lot of people asked the same variant of the question, McMullen admitted that they're using numbers close to the government estimates of 25 to 3.5% inflation over the full year 2022. They do expect inflationary impacts to be larger in the first two quarters simply because those last two quarters of the year, those are going to be cycling the high inflation numbers from 2021. So we can see here if these are Kroger's internal numbers, they do expect falling unit sales in the coming year, whether that's because of consumer sensitivity on price whether that's because people start going back to restaurants a little bit remains to be seen, but a little bit more on inflation here. They did talk about how there may be impacts for retailers in general just beyond price increases. McMullen indicated actually one of the behaviors that they're seeing among their customers is a rise in coupon usage and behavior surrounding coupons so far in this fiscal year. And this might be important to note for other retailers as well. When you look across this landscape, Kroger has been very aggressive in issuing coupons to shoppers in both paper and digital form. If you shop at a Kroger affiliate on a regular basis, oftentimes you'll receive coupons in the mail, you'll receive them via email, you'll receive them digitally in your app. Now, some other retailers really kind of constrain this to digital. We see Albertsons and Safeway as maybe a large example of that. Other stores that are out there don't leverage coupons in either sense. You look at Walmart as maybe the most prominent example. So you wonder if increased coupon issuance might attract a larger customer base during the inflationary times we're expected to see over the next year, especially since consumer behavior is trending towards using those more often. And the more Kroger sends them out, the more they get people into their stores. And likewise, despite the trading up that we mentioned in certain categories like fresh, like cheese, Kroger's starting to note customers trading down in center store products, flowing particularly towards private labels, therefore the importance of rolling out new private label products. But also they noted that customers beginning to tend away maybe towards some of those more expensive products, some of those CPG related products that you see in the center of the store that we've talked about the increased supply chain costs there forcing prices upwards. Also, based on their data, there's a feeling that customers are changing their spending behavior outside of food more than within food itself, basically saying that customers' grocery spending behavior has been relatively similar to pre-inflation levels, has been relatively untouched. And one of the assumed reasons here is that leadership mentioned they feel like customers kind of learned not only how to prepare foods in their home during the pandemic, but also they found that it was cheaper to do this, cheaper to prep meals at home than to go to restaurants during that time. Because of the fact that they learned this during the pandemic, the idea is that as they become more budget conscious, grocery spend stays in place Maybe they don't eat at restaurants quite as often, even though you see the restrictions easing, even though you see people a bit more comfortable about visiting restaurants as we ease towards whatever the next phase of the pandemic is. And they're making cuts elsewhere in order to sustain that grocery spend. 
And I think this is a really interesting point because their argument is basically, yeah, we're seeing slight impacts in terms of customer decision-making due to inflation, budget-conscious consumers flocking towards coupons more often, shopping sale products more often, trading down in the center of the store, still willing to trade up on the edges of the store for quality, and they're more willing to trade up because they're making cuts in other areas that maybe don't affect Kroger quite as much. So something to kind of keep an eye out for as far as the overall retail landscape in the inflationary pressures we're likely to see during 2022. Kroger also expects, switching gears here a little bit, a slight bump in capital investments by a little over 5%. This is designed to serve in a catch-up role. They actually had money saved aside for capital investments the last couple of years that they weren't able to utilize in whole, in part because of COVID-related constraints, in part because of other headwinds, likely going to see brick-and-mortar growth play a small role in this. They didn't mention digital specifically simply because they are putting so much CapEx to begin with towards digital, but I think you'll start to see a little bit more commitment towards brick-and-mortar growth and some of those new developments we've talked about Kroger being involved in here over the next couple of years. And then there was a good question on the call regarding 2022, regarding going forward, on the promotional environment as well. Michael Lasser from UBS noted that the number of products on promotion for Kroger is down about 500 basis points versus the pandemic, so the different number of SKUs on promotion. And he asked if this would likely continue with Kroger or continue industry-wide, the idea being that grocers as a whole, the time before the pandemic, were very consistent in the number of SKUs that were on promotion at any given time. And both McMullen and CFO Gary Millerchip provided some interesting insight on their promotion ideology going forward. They were quick to note, hey, we can't tell you what other retailers are thinking here, but this is what we're seeing. And honestly, we wouldn't be surprised to see other retailers follow suit here. But first, when the pandemic started, Kroger had to moderate the number of SKUs on promotion, not only because they saw opportunity to improve margins, don't worry, they certainly did, and that was unspoken here, but also because some of the products were flat out difficult to stock over the last two years, especially those CPG products, but other products where you saw really the pantry stocking behavior going on, they said, hey, it was difficult to run promotions because we didn't know if we would have the product to run promotions. So what they did was they shifted their promotions to higher volume categories that they were more certain they would be able to stock. And then they began to track promotion-based sales based on overall volume of sales rather than a SKU-based system. So as far as Kroger's concerned, at least, they're not as worried as the number of different products that are on sale in any given week. They're more concerned and their internal metrics work entirely based on overall volume. What type of promotional volume can we bring in as a company, basically, is Kroger's mindset. And this seems to have worked pretty well as comps have borne out, like we talked about kind of at the beginning of the story. As such, we can expect, I think, these types of promotion systems to stay in place going forward, if not for the industry, then at least for Kroger as a whole. Overall promotional activity based on volume for Kroger is similar to pre-pandemic levels. So again, it comes down to what can we promote, what can we decrease prices on that will really drive traffic and drive volume for those particular sales, rather than just saying, hey, we've got all of these different items on sale this week, 
and maybe having lesser sales on each of those items or maybe not bringing in as many customers because you're not looking at promotions in terms of traffic drivers. You're not looking at promotions in terms of volume drivers. So I think that's an interesting paradigm shift for Kroger, an interesting shift in mindset during the course of the pandemic. And of course, Kroger, I don't mean to insinuate that they haven't always been keeping volume-based metrics on hand, but it is really interesting to see them look at promotions in this way instead of, hey, how many SKUs do we have on promotion during a given time? Well, that'll do it for our news segment. Coming up after this break, we'll be joined by Joel Bynes, once again, the author of the new book, The Metail Economy. He's also the global co-leader of the retail practice at Alex Partners. We'll have a really insightful discussion, not only about his book, but also about examples of some retailers that are following or maybe not following some of the suggestions he has for retailers to attract today's consumer in his publication. Whether online or in-store, regardless of area or sector, customers today thirst for more personalization and more control over their retail experience than ever before. And a new book called The Metail Economy delves into what retailers can do to attract today's consumer. We're pleased to be joined by the book's author, Joel Bynes, global co-leader of the retail practice at Alex Partners, to discuss the book and more. Joel, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Trent. It's a pleasure to be here. First, I was wondering if you could provide us a little bit of background on Alex Partners and your role there, just so we have a little bit of color as far as the perspective that you bring. Happy to. Alex Partners is a global management consulting firm. We provide consulting services across a wide variety of areas to businesses all over the world. As a global firm, we have offices in almost 30 countries. We specialize in a number of industries. One of the largest industry focuses for our firm is retail and consumer, and I am the global co-lead of that business. And I know you guys work with a wide variety and wide number of retail partners there. I'm curious, as you were going about your daily work at Alex Partners, what was kind of the driving force behind starting the work and research that went into this book? Yeah, the book was really a culmination of almost 30 years at the time that I decided to write the book of having worked in the retail and consumer space. So I spent the first half of my career working for retail businesses as an operator in those businesses. And then I've been at Alex Partners for nearly 20 years now. And while I understand the retail industry intimately from the inside and also outside as an advisor, one of the things that I had observed about the retail industry over the course of my career was that a lot of people talk about disruption and revolution and they confuse the two and they would think about a new store format or the internet or something like that as a revolution and it never really seemed that way to me it always seemed like it was just a disruption of the way we were used to doing things and we needed to figure out how to adjust to this disruption and then it really struck me one day that the real revolution is the power inversion that has happened as a result of technology and access to information and the consumers have ever more power in the relationship between retail and consumer businesses and the consumers themselves. 
Now that of course is a function of technology, but it's not technology like people think of it as, oh, well, now everybody's buying everything online, therefore it's been a revolution. So as I started to come to that realization, I just kept with it for a while and I pulled on a lot of strings and I did a lot of reading and I talked to a lot of people and I got a lot of consistent feedback that the premise was both an interesting premise and also probably worth exploring in more depth. And that's when I set out to see if maybe I could put together a book that would say something about it. And three and a half years later, here we are. So this power dynamic switch is very interesting to me because it's something we've seen in other industries as well. I think people point to media as one particular industry. How has the dynamic shift affected retail, maybe just at a high level to this point? Well, I think the easiest way to describe the power shift is consumers have always had agency, but they have lacked power. And maybe to elaborate just a little bit, the lack of power just meant that the friction and the switching costs were too high, typically, for consumers who were having a bad experience or would prefer not to purchase a product from this particular retailer or visit this particular consumer location. But there really wasn't anything that they could do about it. And I say to people all the time, I'm sure you've had the same feeling that I've had many times, which is, boy, I wish I didn't have to buy this thing from this person at this price in this way. But my alternatives are even worse. I have to get back in my car and drive somewhere. Or I have to spend a bunch more time or I have to take a risk buying something from an unknown or whatever it is. There's a lot of friction. Well, there's no friction anymore. Today, at any given moment, at any given time, any given consumer can not only find out all of the information that they need to find out about the product or the service or the goods or whatever, but they can also find alternatives to those things and they can drill down into the attributes of those things that they care about. So am I getting a good price? Is the quality of the material up to my standards? Is the material environmentally friendly? Is it sourced domestically or overseas? There's nothing that you can't find out now as a consumer. And because they're empowered in a way that they've never been empowered before, and because it's easier than it's ever been to switch from one purchase path to another purchase path, that's been the big revolution. And consumers you know, have always been right. We say that all the time, the customer is always right. But how many times have you felt like the business was treating you like you were always right as a consumer? I would say very infrequently. So these days, that is an absolute must. And that's the point. The Mies have taken control of the power and they're never giving it back. So that brings us to one of the main topics of the book, which is kind of the virtues of the six C's that you break down in the book. And I was wondering if you could kind of break those six C's down for us here on the show. Yes, I absolutely can. So before I start talking about the six C's, let me just say just a minute about what they are not. So one of my hesitations in writing a business book is that I am not a particular fan of the business book genre. I find that most business books are written sort of anecdote forward and then a neat little framework is created and then you're supposed to apply that framework that worked at business X in time Y to your business and everything will be fine. And I just don't think that that's the case. I think every business is unique, just like every consumer is unique. So what I'm explicit about in the book right up front is the six C's are not so much strategies as they are ingredients. And what I was able to do is I was able to, at least for me, distill down the six ingredients that go into creating lasting relationships with customers and to think about those ingredients with respect to retail and consumer businesses and how they can use them. Imagine you're on the great 
retail cooking show. So everyone has the same basket of six ingredients, but you might use a heavier dose of pepper than I would. I might use more salt than you and so on and so forth. So I just want to say right up front, that's the orientation I want readers to take when they read the book, which is to think about them as ingredients in terms of baking a dish, but not the recipe itself. So the six C's are cost, convenience, category, expertise, customization, curation, and community. Those are the six ways that you can create a relationship with the new all-powerful me that I define in this book. I really like the fact that you allude to these six C's as ingredients more than this is the roadmap that everyone must follow going forward. And you're looking at that, you might have some retailers that focus more on one or two of the C's, maybe more on cost, let's say, than other retailers that are out there. And I'm curious, as you were going through the research process of this book, were there retailers in particular sectors or retailers in particular areas that focused on some of the ingredients more than the others? Or what was kind of the ingredient breakdown that you saw across different retail sectors? So what I would say when I was researching the book was I would put the industry into two camps. There was the camp, which applies to the vast majority of retail and consumer businesses today, which is I don't know which of the six C's that they're using, and I would venture to bet that they don't know which of the six C's that they're using. And that's really who the book is written for, the first part of the book, which is to recognize this incredible power inversion, this true revolution with the what I call the quantum consumer and how difficult it is going to be to attract them today. They need to really understand who they are to their consumers and what they want to be. But throughout the book, in each of the chapters, as I define the C's, I take the readers through a history of retailers that competed with those C's. I use some specific examples of retailers that are doing a good job with the C. I also, rare for a business consultant, I call out retailers by name that are not doing a particularly good job of that particular C. And I offer opportunities for how they might rethink things. And so my goal with writing the book was to write a book that was actually interesting to read if you are interested in retail. So I get a lot of really positive feedback from people saying, whether they agree with the premise or they disagree with the premise, they say, I just, I really enjoyed reading your book. It was a fun walk down memory lane, or I like the way you contrasted company A with company B in that chapter, just to try to make it a little bit more real. People who know me know that I'm, I'm a very direct and to the point sort of person, and that's the way the book is written. And I really do like the fact that not only do we have best practices here, but we have worst practices here in terms of exactly. if we go beyond just the anecdote of, hey, company A is doing this, everyone should do this. Let's hone in on convenience for a second, because I know this is something that a lot of retailers seem to be bringing up over the past several months as we shift our shopping behavior a little bit coming maybe out of the pandemic what are some of the positives? What are some of the negatives that you're seeing retailers utilize in terms of focus on convenience or maybe not focus on convenience at all? Yeah. Well, let's start with the pitfalls, actually, because they really can be regressed down into one thing, which is businesses that think that they are providing customer conveniences but are, in fact, not providing customer conveniences almost always miss the point. And the point is, if you are going to use a healthy dose of the convenience C, then it always has to be convenient for the customer, irrespective of how it might impact your profitability at that moment. And so what I find 
too often with retailers who are missing on the convenience dimension, even if they think they're providing it, is that they come right up to the edge of a really good idea that would be a customer convenience. And then they stop short because they run the math and they think, oh, it'll be too expensive or I'll miss my quarterly budget if I invest this much money or worse, mm, I can use this customer convenience as a way to, so for example, you see a lot of retailers that locate their customer service desk in an inconvenient place in the store. It's not by accident that they do it. It's because they've had, you know, some fresh-faced 26-year-old strategy consultant talk to them about attach rate, which is just a silly thing to think about if you're thinking about long-term relationships. But the idea being, if I make you walk through my store to return your item, you're more likely to pick up socks and gloves and a hat on the way out and buy something else. And sure you are, maybe once, but ultimately that's going to wear you down. If you contrast that with just this week, Target announced that not only have they made their returns desk very convenient at the front of the store, but now they're going to start taking returns in the pickup lanes outside of their stores. So I don't even have to get out of my car to make a return anymore. That's convenience. And really, it becomes about the long-term benefit of keeping that customer around for a long period of time, which comes back to really the core of what this book is about. I wanted to also talk a little bit about customization because we hear retailers talk about this so much. We know the data from consumers. They want customization. They want personalization. They want those type of things. But yet it seems like we're still, everyone talks about it, but we're still so far off in terms of really getting our minds around customization and what that should look like for the customer. What were some best practices and what were some pitfalls in terms of that C? Okay, so first of all, I agree completely with you that what we have at the moment is a lot of talk and not a lot of action related to personalization. Customization, I think there are retailers that are doing a little bit better job. And I'm glad you asked about that, C, because it's actually my favorite one to talk about. The thing about customization is it satisfies a need that consumers have had forever, which is that they have something that they believe is made just for them they have the only one or they have something unique or it's fit just for them or so on and so forth. And for a very, very, very long time, it was extraordinarily difficult to deliver that at scale, whether it was clothes or an experience. It was very costly. But technology, particularly manufacturing technology, has changed so much now that I say, and this is what I say in the book, that you can provide customization or the illusion of customization much more cost-effectively today than you ever could. And what I mean by the illusion of customization is a garment doesn't have to be fully bespoke the way that you might get it from a Savile Row tailor for the consumer to believe that it is being customized for him or for her. You just have to think of the number of choices and options that would make someone feel as though the thing is customized and then add one or two more options and then that's the end of it. You know, the Nike shoe ID is a perfect example. You can design your own shoe and you think that you have an infinite range of choices, but in fact, you don't actually have an infinite range of choices. You just have choice. So it's a very, very interesting C because there are very few examples of businesses that I can think of that couldn't provide a bit of a customized experience. It's one of those ingredients I think everybody should at least have a dash of in their recipe. And I think that that wouldn't have been the case 10 years ago. So we talk about having a dash of customization. And I know one retail sector that's done pretty well over the last couple of years that might just have a dash of customization, but might not be able to spread out too much beyond that is the off-price sector. And this brings me to the sixth seed that's in the book, which is community. 
And it seems like the best off pricers develop a community around their stores, develop kind of an ethos around shopping at those particular stores. What were some of the things that you were seeing retailers do well as far as making customers, as you mentioned, feel at home? Yeah, that's actually a really interesting way to approach the question because one of the things that I say in the book is community doesn't have to be defined the way a lot of people think of community, sort of a social community or common good community or something like that. You certainly have retailers like REI or Lululemon and so forth, uh, Patagonia, who've built a community around social good, and that's excellent. But you can also build a community, as you say, the off-price community. You can build a community of treasure hunters. You can build a community of value seekers. You can build a community of finders. You just have to understand that nurturing that community is important. And so what I say in the book is if you are going to use the community C, you can never, ever, ever compromise on anything that could be perceived as anti-community. And a silly example that I use in the book is if you are a sporting goods retailer and you are accumulating a sporting goods community that is interested in promoting youth sports, then when you have a bad quarter or you have a bad year, you can't cut the Little League Baseball sponsorship budget. You just simply cannot. You have to find some other way. And you know it's a silly example, but the point is, it is the absolute zeal and passion and relentless pursuit of reinforcing the community's values that will maintain the community. And it's extremely difficult to create a community, but it's extremely easy to destroy one as well. So you mentioned earlier when we were talking about customization, how it's never been easier, it's never been less expensive if you're looking at the expense for a retailer to provide at least that perception of choice, that perception of customization for a customer. Is there something else that's out there, maybe low-hanging fruit, that you look at and say, man, more retailers should be doing this, but they're just not, and it's easy or cost-effective? You know, I don't want to sound like I'm avoiding the question, but it really depends. I think actually too many retailers are providing too many things rather than not enough things. And so the last part of the book is called an executive action plan, but it's sort of a framework for thinking through how you can reassess your C's and your operating model. Again, just in a way of helping coach you through a process, not giving you the answers to the process for people who are reading the book. And you know, I really challenge people to truly define the elements that they want to manifest to their customers. And then really sort of be relentless about rooting other things out. So if you're a retailer and you want to start from your customers backwards, you have to ask whether every single thing, every single time, is this something that is in fact customer backwards or is it just something that we do or is it something that we're doing because we think we have to because our competitors are doing it. And so maybe your customers do need products in two hours or two days, but maybe they don't. And that's the process that I think I want retail executives going through after reading the book is really understanding that you can't be everything to everyone. You can't do everything. You have to choose. And so I try to give them a little bit of a way to think about how they might choose. That's uh, once again, going back to the ingredient analogy, no one wants to eat a soup where there's 300 ingredients in there. And some... <laughs> I don't know, maybe maybe in one of those crazy restaurants in Barcelona or something. But yeah, for the most part, no. Exactly. So we've talked about a few retailers that are getting it right. You mentioned Target when it comes to streamlining the returns process. We talked about the community surrounding retailers like REI. 
Are there other retailers or maybe just a few retailers that you look out there and you say, well, they are very well defined. They're getting the job done in terms of defining what they need to mean to their particular core customer or their potential core customer. Sure. I mean, there are a number of retailers that are doing a great job of it. For starters, you have Amazon. They are doing the best job of anyone in terms of having a North Star. Jeff Bezos used to talk about the importance of just being relentlessly focused on pleasing the customer. And they certainly haven't lost that in spite of, you know, you have good days and bad days, of course, but you have that North Star. You know, there's another interesting one that I think is, as a student of the retail industry, I think is fascinating and definitely on the right direction. This is maybe a little bit, not arcane, but listeners may or may not be familiar with this just quite yet, although there was a lot of press about it last year. But Saks Fifth Avenue, the North American luxury department store, has fundamentally and formally split their store's business from their digital business. Now, it's still one business to the customer. It's completely seamless from a customer's perspective. But they've gone so far as to recognize that if they create a digital operation and a physical operation, the digital people will be able to focus on providing the digital experiences in the best possible way. The store operations business will be able to do the same thing on the store side. And together, if you make sure that that's seamless to the customer, you know, you'll be able to do better, win more work. And I think that that's an absolutely brilliant strategy. You know, we just had this week, we had Ford announced they were splitting into old Ford and new Ford and new Ford's going to be focused on e-vehicles. And so this idea that what you want to do is you want to think about where the next leg of your growth is coming from and ensure that your operations and organization is designed in a way that you can, in fact, focus the best minds on the problems that you need to solve for the next 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, and so on. That's really fascinating. So those would be two examples. I love the fact that you bring up the Saks Fifth Avenue example because it's something that we've even heard retailers talk about emulating here over the past six months is splitting those two divisions off. Well, once again, Joel, thank you so much for taking the time joining us today. It's a fantastic book. Once again, you can get it on Amazon. It's called The Metail Economy, the, the very same Amazon that's getting the job done in terms of pleasing their customer and keeping a very customer-centric role. Joel, thank you once again for joining us. Trent, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. We thank Joel for joining us in that insightful conversation and also, to be quite frank, his microphone quality was the best among pretty much anyone we've interviewed recently, so do appreciate him for that as well. Now, in our Looking Ahead segment, a lot of retail news, as we talked about in the open this week, but wanted to look at Dollar Tree, who also released earnings this week, beat analyst expectations. The main points covered in their earnings call had to do with decent comps. Comps were up 3.1% at Dollar Tree and 1.7% at Family Dollar. Also, the main analyst focus on the call, as you can imagine, is Dollar Tree's conversion to the $1.25 price point ahead of schedule, which is now complete at their Dollar Tree stores. In the United States, analysts wanted to know where unit sales are coming in, where overall sales are coming in. And while they didn't have comp numbers specific to before and after the conversion that they felt comfortable releasing, they did say generally information is positive there. However, the reason it's our looking ahead story, or our looking ahead story involves Dollar Tree is that the news surrounding Dollar Tree and Family Dollar lately hasn't been quite as glowing. As Leighton and I mentioned just last week 
In a brief blurb, they were forced to temporarily close a good many family dollar stores in the southern United States due to a rodent infestation in an Arkansas distribution center. In their earnings report, they actually referred to this as, and I quote, a recent product recall, but many family dollar stores were forced to close for a while, in fact, in some cases up to a week, until they could confirm that the infestation hadn't spread to those stores via freight. Overall, about 404 family dollar stores were impacted, costing the company, they estimate, around $34.1 million. They don't anticipate further costs related to this, but again, the cost may go up or down once everything is reconciled. This news came after multiple analysts noted the absolute mess of a state some of their stores are in. If you've been to a dollar store recently, and this is the same for Dollar General, carts of merchandise oftentimes sitting in the aisles to be stocked. Analysts noted sometimes these carts of merchandise would be sitting in aisles for days at a time boxes strewn about such that people can't navigate the aisles. And analysts said, you know, hey, honestly, at this point, we're not even confident that Dollar Tree as a company knows what inventory they have and where just because so little of it is actually making it to store shelves on time. And this is something that CFO Kevin Wampler in the analyst Q&A mentioned on the call. He said there's a backlog trying to get inventory moved, not just looking at coast to coast for imports, but also getting them to the shelves as well. And they mentioned spending an additional $200 million on labor between stores and distribution centers on this call. However, other than the fact that they noted labor is going to be kind of a go-forward headwind, there weren't really any details about how they plan to scale their labor up or if they do. Honestly, not sure the additional expenditure as they have it laid out in staffing will be enough to alleviate their current growing pains And as some analysts actually alluded to on the call, there may be a need soon to replanogram Dollar Tree stores because a larger merchandise mix is expecting to come in now with this $1.25 price point really opening things up for their buyers, which means on the store level, things are going to have to be reassorted a little bit because you have limited shelf space. You can't just add shelf space in the stores. So you need staffing for that. And this is the reason I'm looking ahead. I think this is really a crucial year coming up for Dollar Tree because they're opening a lot of the combined locations. They're seeing success in the combined locations between Family Dollar and Dollar Tree. If you hang out on commercial real estate websites at all, you will see the combined stores, new builds up for sale as contractors get them built and as contractors sell them off. So on that front, very, very positive surrounding Family Dollar and Dollar Tree. The negative side of things is They just don't have the staff available to be able to get the merchandise on the shelves or even to be able to open the entire time they're supposed to be open. I've talked to a couple of store managers in the last month, one of which was in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and I asked her because she had noted that the store was closing early two days a week, closing at 6 o'clock a couple of days a week, and I said, well, is that just because sales aren't very good during those times? You know, why, why is there that adjustment? And she said, honestly, I can't get the staff. And she said, yeah, that's why you see empty shelves in the store. That's why you see boxes in the store. We're trying our best to stock everything and get everything out. But the problem is we have enough customers that everyone is concerned at the Dollar Tree stores with the front end. Because they don't have enough time to go back in stock because the customer flow is so good, it ends up eating away at your productivity in terms of getting things stocked. And additionally, they can't 
outsource additional labor to be able to stay open even the times that they're supposed to be open. So you wonder how many sales Dollar Tree as a company is leaving on the table by not being able to hire, by not being able to scale up hiring plans, like Kroger has apparently done and done a very good job of, as we talked about in the first segment. So I think this is a crucial year for them because after a while, customers tire of having to step over boxes and step around what we used to call U-boats in the retail business, but step around these carts and these flats of merchandise to get to the other merchandise. They're tired of going to stores and seeing shelves empty. And eventually you have to wonder if this is going to maybe erode customer loyalty at Family Dollar and Dollar Tree, and maybe also to an extent at Dollar General, although I don't think their issues are quite as well pronounced. I think everything that happened with the distribution center really shone a light on the fact that a lot of retailers are operating not on razor-thin margins necessarily, but on razor-thin margins for human capital. Just a few additional hires, you would think, in certain markets would make a big difference, an outsized difference, in fact, in terms of sales, in terms of stocking ability, in terms of running a smooth ship at those retail stores. So this is a company that I'm looking very carefully at. Will they increase wages? Will they become more aggressive in hiring? Will they kind of backtrack on what has been their MO to this point with stocking, having at any given time just two to three associates in a given store so that they can serve their customers well? I think it goes back to what Joel was talking about in the interview segment. When you lose that customer-first focus and your first focus is the bottom line and you make decisions just for the bottom line and not for the customer base, it might benefit your bottom line in the short term. In the long term, your business will suffer. So does Dollar Tree have it in them to be customer-focused enough to bring on additional employees, whether that means increasing pay for their employees across the board, increasing benefits, whatever that looks like for them in these individual markets? Are they willing to do what it takes? Because right now I can tell you as a personal consumer of those stores, and I know talking to many other people who have been in those stores recently, it's a turnoff to have to step around merchandise. And you expect that to an extent in certain off-price stores and the like, but really you don't expect that in the likes of a dollar store. And so will they be scaling up in terms of their hiring during this coming year, or will it continue to grow on itself until it's such a major problem that it's going to need a complete company-wide reset and refocus. So that's our Looking Ahead story for this week. We thank you for listening. If you've made it this far, coming up next week, we'll be joined by Nikki Baird at Aptos. We talked to Nikki at the beginning days of the pandemic, really about the role brick and mortar is serving in kind of the newer post-pandemic retail landscape. We'll check back in with her now that it's 2022, now that it's a couple of years later. We'll talk to her a little bit about how brick and mortar has become more important in terms of last mile fulfillment and delivery. We'll talk to her about other facets of brick and mortar in terms of what role these stores are serving within communities, not only as retailers, but also in many cases as service providers as well. So that's coming up on next week's episode. We thank Joel Bynes for joining us. And once again, you can check out his book on Amazon called The Metail Economy. Thank you for late and behind the scenes. And we thank you for listening. We'll be back seven days from now. This has been the Retail Focus Podcast. For more, visit our website at retailfocuspodcast.com and subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. 
Follow us on Twitter at Retail Podcast.